So what I would like to speak about this morning is um, the practice in relationship to silence. <clears throat> I often say, and uh, mean it, that the teacher, the meditation teacher, is not the person who sits in front giving instruction, myself or others, um, but silence itself. Uh, silence is the great teacher. And what we try to do for day-longs and retreats is to create the optimum environment for silence to get hold of you. And I'll explain what I mean in a minute by that. Uh, a life that is full of distractions in which we don't ever allow or welcome silence in is mostly how we live. And such a life uh, just kind of moves from one continuum of noise to the next. Radio, television, conversation. Even when we are quiet in ourselves, supposedly when we are sleeping, we are filled with dreams and images and other things. There's always something coming in. It always feels as if we have input, doesn't it? And you begin to realize that much of that input is a defense against silence. Some of it has been so automatically engendered over the years that uh, it's almost unconscious in how it is that we avoid silence. And what we will realize very quickly when we sit by ourselves is that we, this experience of noise continues even as we are sitting still, not conversing or distracting ourselves with any mechanical means. That this sense of, of ongoing noise has been so engendered in us that it's been part of our neurological system. That we don't have to think thoughts, thoughts think us. Just being quiet, thoughts continue. Almost like a waterfall effect. Now, the, one of the real tasks early on, well not early on, actually it's a continuum, it's a task that is a continuum for people, is to learn the difference between life lived abiding in silence and life lived through the veil of noise. And most of us don't know the difference. We only know that life lived through the screen of noise. So everything that we see is has a layer of noise between us and what it is that we see, feel, sense, or taste. Meditation, you might say, is to find out what's on or explore what's on the other side of that noise. Now, how are we going to do that? How are we going to do that if we keep bringing noise into our life? If noise is the way that we operate our life, the first thing we do when we get in the car is to turn on the radio, and perhaps the first thing we do when we enter our home is to turn on the TV. Some of us feel very lost when we're not conversing. We feel very alone and abandoned within our silence, within our aloneness. And so we see that part of the trouble of welcoming silence in is the fact that we are afraid of being in stillness, in quiet. 
It feels not inviting to us, but like an enemy somehow. Like something that is so foreign to us uh, that we feel um, threatened by it, don't we? We feel threatened by it. Okay. Now, one of the problems, perhaps one of the major difficulties of living in noise is that it generates a sense of busyness in us. Something else we have to do. We stay edgy, right? Troubled. Kind of, and we don't even realize that behind the scenes, this white noise of, this white noise is constantly churning its way to keep us in movement. That we have so invited a sense of busyness and noise into our life that we can't shut it off and that it has its effect even when we retire or when the day's work has ended. During those many pauses in the day when silence could come in, we fill it with more noise and chatter and it has turned into a kind of anxious and stressful frenetic activity that we don't even know what it's about so that we can't do anything for the sake of it, of doing it. We're the noise is asking us to move through what we're doing to the next thing. So that what we're doing, if we ever settled with it, we would be in stillness with it. Because for us to do something for just the sake of doing it, rather, would be quiet, wouldn't it? We'd be, have to be quiet in order to do that. If you, Whenever you do one activity for its own sake, like brushing your teeth, and... The mind has to be quiet within that activity. But because noise is the only way we know to live, we find that even in the most common activities, we can't and haven't learned how to be quiet. Because the noise is what has governed our life. We welcome noise through all events, through everything we do. Watch it. See if you br- while you're brushing your teeth whether you can just brush your teeth. See if while you're doing walking meditation if you can take each step from quietude or your mind just buzzes like a beehive continually asking us to do something even though those circumstances of doing that aren't necessarily even at hand. You can see the state of affairs when you begin to bracket what meditation is supposed to do, which is abiding in quiet, abiding in stillness, with what the mind is trying to do to us all day long, which is abiding only in noise. You can see the lives, how disparate those two dimensions of our lives are, how separate they are, how distant they are from one another. Now, it's very interesting, you see, to start asking questions about why is it that we have to be so noise filled with noise? What is it that we get? What's the advantages? Whenever we're doing something to this degree, we're getting something out of it. We're not doing it to punish ourselves. We're doing it because we get something out of the noise. We also have a limitation of what we're getting. Another problem with living with noise is that noise, because it beckons us beyond the moment, 
You see, it doesn't allow us to just be quiet in the moment. It's taking us out of the moment. It's saying this moment isn't worth paying attention to. It's the next moment, tomorrow, the future, that really uh, warrants our attention and focus. And because of that, we carry a sense in ourselves, a sense that something is wrong with us because we can't rest in this moment. Something must be wrong since we're constantly being called out of this moment into the next moment. The residue of that beckoning is that there must be something wrong in this moment. And many of us, when we look at this moment, we find something wrong, which is the reason which gives us the excuse for not showing up for this moment because there's something wrong with it. And the reason why we have to think our way into the next moment and plan for the next moment because the rightness of the wrong of this moment will be in the future. And so this sense of something wrong with me, there's something wrong. First it starts out as there's something wrong. Then it goes, gets very personal. There's something wrong with me in this moment. At first, it can just be a, a, a kind of an annoying sense of limitation, of some limitation on this moment. So then, because we're filled with noise, what we do from that limitation is create in a desire for there to be more than what this moment is offering. And the desire is more noise, creating more disturbance from this moment, pointing more towards the future when I can acquire what it is I need to bring into the moment that will satisfy this moment so that it won't be wrong. The problem is that when we obtain that desire, it doesn't allow us to settle at all. We're off looking because the momentary satisfaction of a desire is very temporary Quickly, we're off pursuing something else, which is more noise. So as we just go from noise to noise to noise, where is the contentment in life in that? And more commonly, we internalize the sense of something being wrong and we say, there's something wrong with me in this moment. And we make it a journey now out of ourselves, out of the mistake that we feel we are into a transforming moment when we can become the person we want to be. And so the journey, which is a very disquieting, notice I'm using words around noise, disquieting life to live is the journey of the mind. For the mind is never satisfied. The mind is always wanting more than what it has obtained or could obtain in this moment. Because when it's quiet, and this is a key point, when it abides in this moment, it, it has to be quiet. Because this moment doesn't offer a future or a past to ruminate on. And because it's so afraid of quiet, it keeps generating something else to do for itself. And the motivation for that doing is the sense that something needs correction. There's a correction problem here. There's a difficulty going on. 
Now we'll watch it all along the way. Most of our bodily movements, most of our, all of our mental movements have to do with trying to satisfy what we feel is wrong in this moment to correct in the future. And when we sit still, we will find our history of troubled moments arising. Some of them are very disturbing, troubled times when we had drama in our life or we feel of shame or guilt or remorse when we weren't up to the task that the moment asked of us, how we were remiss. All of those times will come back into the focus when we're quiet. And because we don't want to have to relive our past, we then make ourselves very noisy so we can join the future, which takes us out of our troubled sense of self. So this is the predicament that most of us find ourselves in. Now the question is, what do we do? The meditation is an attempt to counter all of that. Mental and physical activity. It has us sit quietly without the distractions of our life. And very quickly, for those of you who are new in particular, I warn you, you won't like this. It sounds like a great thing that you can do until you start doing it. And then you won't like it. Because it leaves you with yourself. And most of us do not want to be left that alone. And most of us start feeling disturbed by what it is that arises. And we find a reason to stop meditating because the disturbance is the quiet that's entering our life. And no longer is our life bracketed by noise. And because we are so unaccustomed to a life lived through silence, we look ahead and never find the time to sit. There's always a reason, and it's usually a reason around something that really needs to be done. Right? I can't sit now because I've, I've got to, and if I did sit, I wouldn't finish the, the vacuuming wouldn't get done. Right? And so I want to leave us now with that question. If it is so obvious, what the limitation is in working with noise, what do I get out of it? What's the value? What is does noise give me? And we'll be talking about that. What we've been uh, speaking about <clears throat> is the proper alignment of our practice to Silence. And silence is the great teacher. And that uh, we have to direct, it's almost um, an intentional direction to move our practice towards silence. Uh, as, as, as sort of uh, align it all to the practice of silence. Because uh, what's on the other end of noise is a very strong sense of me. Uh, we, the me noises everything. That's how it knows itself, is by noising or tying in itself to everything. So it will never let an emotion just be an emotion. It's my emotion. It will never let a 
sight or sound or smell or taste or anything be itself, it'll always tie to I, me, or mine. So the me, the sense of me, busily through noise ties each individual event to itself. And so if you practice in that direction, you can be assured that you will have a very strong sense of self at the end of all those years of practice. But that's not the direction that the Buddha is pointing. Buddha is not pointing in the direction of more noise. And we can get very clever in our noise by uh, bringing a lot of other noise to the noise that we think offsets that noise. Right? Sort of self-beautification techniques or alter, or, um, balancing a lot of anxiety with intentional periods of metta or something, another balancing meditation or something to sort of weigh in. Not that those practices don't have validity. They do in many situations and are very appropriate. But if we only know our meditation as being driven towards more noise, then we will at the end of our meditation be noisier. And what that will mean is that you will have a stronger sense of self-individuation and and a stronger sense of separation. And separation ultimately leads to the agony of our life. It's the reason that we feel so isolated from one another and we do all sorts of things which are ways to tone this isolated entity up. Uh, But we never reconnect because to reconnect we have to be quiet. That's how we reconnect. If you look at, just look at, if we look at our lives as is, you'll find that the greatest intimacy, your greatest moments of intimacy come when you're quiet with someone else. When you're willing to listen to them and not confiscate that period, that pause with noise. And there's a beautiful tie-in that occurs through listening because listening is the absence of speaking. So we need to figure this thing out quickly because the world can't tolerate much more noise. And that includes the noise of the righteousness about the way the world is going. Damn it, I don't think it should. Vote for it. All that rancor ultimately just ends in more separation, more isolation, and therefore more selfish behavior. Because a separated, isolated sense of me only has one point in life, and that is to better or improve or make the environment more pleasant for him or herself. There's no tie-in. Because we haven't learned how to do that. We think we can do that through noise, but you can't. We can only do that through quiet. So the Buddha's Eightfold Path, his whole methodology and his whole orientation is towards learning to abide in quietude, abide in stillness. But you can see what we're up against. The mind just doesn't shut up because we sit quietly and look Buddha-like. You can look Buddha-like. And from those in the back room, I'm sure many of us look Buddha-like. But if you're entering their mind, you would want no part <laughs> of what's, what is in there. <laughs> Better to take your own mess 
than to wish yourself the other person's. So the orientation, so what does that mean? It means that we use, this is a key point, we use silence, quiet, as the means to obtain ultimate stillness. We don't use noise. I'm, what I'm doing is taking a whole lot of extraterrestrial terrain that takes you far away and I'm just consolidating it into a straight line picture of what, what is needed. So if you're up for it, this is what's needed. Now most of us want to pull back two feet and go to the left and to the right, circle it like a moth's flame, moth around the flame, maybe fly out to see if there's a better flame somewhere else, but not dive in. That will be up to each of us. But if we want to dive in, this is the way to dive in. You bring, whatever the mind brings forth, the noise of the mind, think of it in two different organs and then I'll put the organs back together, right? The heart is the ability, the stillness itself, the stillness itself that each one of us has intrinsic to ourself is a level of stillness. And then the noise of the mind, that's thinking and always figuring out, conjuring up, reflecting, all of that. You know that one, right? And each of us have one of those. So we meet the noise of the mind with the quiet of the heart. That's the meditation. The quiet of the heart is the awareness. Quiet just doesn't mean the absence of something. There's the presence of awareness in quiet. If you're ever quiet enough and really are quiet, you'll see that accompanying that quiet is presence, is awareness. So when I say quiet, I'm not asking for us to lose anything. In fact, we're gaining something here. We're gaining a tremendous sense of presence, of, of awareness. And that comes automatically because it's intrinsic to the quality of stillness itself. But here's the catch. When the mind brings forth its chatter and emotions, because this is all mental fabrication, and its story about why the emotion is so, if we meet it with the heart of quietude, which is just with awareness, the mind has nowhere to go on that. It can't feed off of awareness. It can't create more of itself from awareness. Add anything else to that noise, and it's a feeding frenzy. Add your upsetness, to what is being to occur to what's occurring, add your dissatisfaction or your judgment to what the mind is doing. It's really the mind that's doing it to itself and feeding and throwing gasoline on the fire. Get so that you know that you are mentally feeding your meditation rather than heart feeding your meditation. If you're mentally feeding your meditation, you're in judgment of what's going on. You're in uh, you're upset with how your practice is going. You're judging and comparing how your practice has been to how it is now manifesting. You're comparing yourself to somebody else sitting next to you. That's all mental meditation. All right? And that's what most of us have been doing, if we're honest, is mentalizing our meditation. And that won't ever lead to quiet, obviously. It'll lead to a lot more judgment. And many people say, gosh, I've been practicing for years and I still have such a judgmental mind. Well, you 
will get back what you put in. It's just that way. So if you put in stillness, you'll get back stillness. In other words, when whatever the mind does, if we do nothing to it, and even if you catch yourself ten reactions later, right? So you're breathing, you think, well, that was a good breath. Gosh, I must be really meditating well. I think I am doing well. I was doing a lot better than I was yesterday, so I must be improving. And on and on. And now you, then you say, oh, my God, I'm judging. I shouldn't be judging. What am I doing? And then you just, like ten lengths down, somewhere you catch the fact that all this has been going on. That's good enough. You've stopped it with stillness. Stillness, you know what it feels like? It feels like quiet. You're not adding any more to it. That's what it feels like. Does it? Stillness has no whiplash effect. It doesn't feel like a, a wagging finger in front of your face. It has no pressure. It doesn't say you should be. The mind says you should be, but the heart never says you should be. I'm trying to give you a sense of what it feels like. It feels like the space around you. How oppressive is the space around you? Does it try to pull you or push you or force you in a particular direction? Obviously not. All it does is allow the movements that are there. If you get that down, you'll understand that allowing the movements that is there is the best way to end the movements that are there. To end the movements that are there, we can't do anything to the movement that is there. But we're used to having the scolding factor, you know, that the only way to get the child to behave is to scold them or punish them punish them into the right behavior. And so we bring that schoolyard method to our own practice. It's not. And it takes faith to feel what the truth is, which is that th- this practice is moving towards not more activity, but less activity. Not more of me. You know the scream, that picture of Edwin Munch on a bridge and he's screaming and there's, you can see the waves of his scream going out from, that's how we reaffirm ourselves in everything we do, including the meditation. We just scream louder. So to offer no more screams. Now, it's beautiful because you begin to see that the absence of noise is love. You see? That the absence, the awareness, the presence isn't just the lack of noise. It holds something of tremendous value to us all. And the less we become invested in the noise and what the noise is saying, the more we feel that other dimension that most of us haven't felt because we're so interested in the argument factor of our life. But as you pull out from that argument factor, as as we are more willing not to keep scolding ourselves with some kind of perpetual blame, your heart begins to warm. Our heart begins to warm because we're abiding more in the space around the noise than reaction to the noise itself. And our practice changes accordingly. 
vastly improves. In the sense, improvement meaning, in the sense of being able to see. Because another quality of that space that doesn't hold noise is discernment, wisdom. It sees, there's a knowing quality within it. The more we spend in that space, the more we want to spend in that space. And I don't mean the me of the little me. I mean our heart. Our heart wants to spend, dwell in that space because it's fed within that space. It's always been under the wagging finger of what it should be doing, the super egoic factor of our minds. It has never been an abided in love for the most part. Because we haven't known how to access love. Because to access love, we have to be quiet. And that's not our knee-jerk response to anything that occurs. Our knee-jerk response is to yell at it, to scold it, to condemn it, to judge it, to belittle it, to compare it, to evaluate it. Now, as we speak, you can feel... let energetically let yourself come down about eight inches from your mind and you'll start feeling this treasure of presence, the treasure of presence. And the longer, again, it's a, as I mentioned before, the longer you spend in there, the more you'll want to spend in there. <coughs> so now I want to talk about why it is that we're so addicted to noise. It's the greatest addiction there is. You talk about cigarette smoking or even heroin, nothing compared to this addiction. Because we're addicted to it, and I'll explain to you why we are. Because noise, noise differentiates us. I can be me and you can be you, differentiated within our terminology, within our words, within the within our description. All of that's noise, isn't it? I'm this way and you're that way. When I define you, I define me in its opposite or in its contrast. And so because differentiation has been the name of our game since for our whole lives and much beyond that, we lead with differentiation. We want to be seen as being different than. Because if we're the same as, well, that's just being normal. That's being ordinary. And there's no word in the English language more terror-filled than ordinariness. I want to be differentiated. I want to be unique. Now, there's an interesting thing here. You just have to follow this. Each of us are unique. But there's an artificial uniqueness that we try to proclaim through our noise, and there's a natural uniqueness that comes through our abiding in stillness and quiet. That natural uniqueness is the natural uniqueness of one tree as compared to another tree or one squirrel and another squirrel, or one dog and another dog. There's a natural expression that life wants from us, our natural expression of aliveness. It wants something that is very particular to what you and I can offer. 
And it can't get to that as long as we're so noisily proclaiming ourselves through our differentiation. Because all it gets is the noise of that. It doesn't really get the meat of, what, of that individual difference. So, you see, it's all backward. We've got it all wrong. It's like we're, I think we're walking south, but really we're walking north. So we have to be smarter than the way our mind is telling us to go. Because our mind has been formed from the need to differentiate. And therefore, if you give your energy over to this organ, it will further characterize you as unique through the noise you make, through your description, again, through your contrast, through your comparison, through all of that. But that isn't the real sense of personal uniqueness. And you can see that there is nothing scarier to anyone than the absence of noise, quiet. As I mentioned when I was young and I was in the house and there was nothing going on, I was, I was flooded with this sense of stillness at night. And it scared the hell out of me because, I mean, you know, it's like I was melting. It was like the Wicked Witch of the North. I'm melting, I'm melting. Stillness doesn't allow uniqueness. Okay? And we want, as long as we want uniqueness, we're not going to want stillness. We're going to want noise. But, like I said before, presence holds something beyond what we think it holds. It not only holds fullness of heart and love, it also holds interconnectedness. So just think, of, think about this logically and then you can get it meditatively. If the mental noise holds uniqueness in terms of separating differences, stillness does not separate out differentiation and therefore, we begin to see in through the common denominator of interconnectedness. It's like a fraction. There's a numerator and a denominator. Most of us only know life from the numerator, from 1 versus 2 versus 8 versus 7, right? The top part of the fraction. But all of the different fractions have a common denominator in this case. Few of us know life from that common denominator point. The interconnectedness of life, the oneness of life. We're much want, we much prefer to be seven-eighths than one-eighth. Even though we share eight, we, we focus in on the one and the seven. This is the way to understand the commonality that we share together. Now, when we're in stillness, it doesn't mean that you are, everybody's an eight and therefore you don't, like, hi George, everybody's George and Mary, right? You must be George, I can't, it's all homogenized. No, no, no. You see the whole of the fraction, not just the numerator and not just the denominator. You see 
what the person proclaims him or herself to be. Mary, Jim, Jack, the differences in appearances. And the heart holds the similarity, the common denominator as well. So we don't relate to the person as only the numerator. In fact, you're much more given to operate and interrelate through the common denominator. And if the person is asking for confirmation or needs something from the numerator, we can offer it without upsetting the apple cart. Are you following my fractions? So this is the path, people. I'm just trying to make it very simple, very clear to us so that we don't get sidetracked here. If we want to know the common denominator of all things, not just individuated things, but all things, all things, then let the heart express itself. Not verbally, but in stillness, in silence. And it will see from that dimension. And it will also be able to relate as an individual. Hi, I'm Rodney, and here's my history. And it won't be confused by those two things. One is a conventional truth asserted because it's needed to function in the world. I need to know the difference between a chair and a table. The other is the absolute truth that no one can disturb. It's undisturbable. So all of our words go go towards infusing more power in the numerator. Nothing can touch the denominator. It's undisturbable. And that's where we rest. And may we all rest there. Thank you.